Thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Two years ago, democracy faced its greatest threats in the Civil War, and today, though bruised, our democracy remains unbowed and unbroken. The State of the Union, as always, depends who you ask. It's Wednesday, February 8th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime, from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, where Congress goes from here on police reform and the economy, and we step back from the news and listen to some poetry from the new Poet Laureate of San Diego. But first, some reaction to President Biden's State of the Union speech last night. He spent more than an hour in the House after his address was over, glad-handing with members of Congress. But there was less warmth in the chamber during the speech itself, at least not coming from conservatives. Biden accused Republicans of trying to take the economy hostage and use the debt ceiling to force cuts to social programs, including Social Security, something he said he won't let happen. He ad-libbed a lot, including after Republicans booed and shouted liar when Biden said some Republicans have suggested sunsetting Social Security which is true. Biden joked that the boos signaled unanimity on the issue, eliciting cheers from Democrats. Scott Tong spoke earlier to Republican Congressman Dusty Johnson for his reaction to the speech. Johnson is the sole representative from South Dakota, and he told Scott he wasn't happy that the president called his party out. I loved it when he was talking about working together to beat cancer on Ukraine, on American supply chains, but gosh darn it, I just thought he tried to define the whole by the opinions of a very few, that was a deliberate attempt to mislead, and I thought it was unworthy of a State of the Union address. Hmm. And, and the response in the chamber? Well, I understood the kind of visceral reaction that, that many Republicans had, kind of the audible gasp or exclamation. I have some grace for that. I can't defend, I think, the more outspoken screams from the chamber. We need to have some decorum in the chamber, even when we strenuously disagree. Mm. And, and let me ask you about these, these programs. You have described the fiscal challenges uh, of these programs as more and more people enter the age where they're eligible for these. The reality, as far as cutting the federal debt, is... Those programs are where the real money is. So where are you on specifics to make changes to Medicare, Social Security, put them on more long-term financial footing? Uh, you're framing the question in the exact right way. How do we put these programs on long-term uh, you know, stronger footing. There are a number of things we can do. Back in 1983, in a strongly bipartisan move, uh, Democratic Speaker Tip O'Neill and Republican President Ronald Reagan stepped forward and over the course of decades, uh, increased the retirement age for the purposes of Social Security from 65 to 67. And that is the kind of thing that we could do long-term, not to touch benefits for anyone who is receiving them today or who is uh, going to receive them in the next two years. But for people my age, 46 years old or younger, I will probably live 20 years longer than my grandparents. I'm not offended at the idea that I might need to work 18 months more to secure an additional 18 years of retirement. 
but uh, it makes it hard to have those kinds of real conversations about demographics and actuarial tables if any attempt to do so is met with hyper-partisan insults by the President of the United States. The President also called on Congress last night to approve lifting the debt ceiling. Congressman, you remember the last time this was a big issue when Congress Standard & Poor's lowered its credit rating for the U.S. It is still at that lower credit rating. Is this political issue going to take us to the brink again? We are not going to default on the debt. It would be irresponsible to do so. What we need to do is what we have done uh, eight times in the relatively recent past, and that is uh, negotiate uh, some budgetary control mechanisms as a part of debt ceiling negotiations so we can put our country on a more uh, firm financial footing, and we should do so on a bipartisan basis. Representative Dusty Johnson, Republican of South Dakota. Scott also spoke to Democratic Senator Cory Booker this morning about his thoughts on the State of the Union, and specifically on the state of police reform, as Booker and other Democrats renew their effort at passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, first introduced nearly two years ago. Here's Scott again. In last year's State of the Union a year ago, the president spoke forcefully of funding the police. Last night, he spoke of preventing violence in the first place. He mentioned his executive order banning chokeholds and no-knock warrants for police officers. Some of those overlap with the George Floyd Justice in Policing Law. Were you encouraged, Senator, by what you heard? I was very encouraged. Look, there's no conflict between funding our police departments. As a former mayor, I know we need to do that. But Americans want to have accountability in policing, high, high professional standards, and transparency. And so, in fact, to make our community safer, we need those things. That's why law enforcement organizations endorsed a lot of the work that we were doing last year uh, from the FOP to the major county uh, police chiefs. It was Mm -hmm. a time where we got close, but we could not get legislation across the aisle. This is a more difficult Congress, but it wasn't just the words last night that made me uh, hopeful despite the challenges and obstacles. It was the fact that in a night where you had one side of the chamber stand up and another seated or another side and the other seated, Mm -hmm. we all stood up that night and recognized uh, Tyree Nichols' mother and her pain. And I I saw within that uh, some hope that maybe we can get something done, maybe not as comprehensive, but something. How did you feel when you looked up and saw Tyree Nichols' parents stand? I, I was very moved. No mother in America, no one should have their child handcuffed, beaten so viciously that they ultimately lose their lives. What, what she is going through is a pain and a hurt uh, that I hope is visited upon no more people in this country. Senator, you have crossed the lines to work with your Republican colleague, Tim Scott, on comprehensive police reform, which stalled in 2021. Over the weekend, you said you're sobered about the possibility of comprehensive reform. It sounds like you're, given the realities, given the votes in Capitol Hill, you're still sober, at least about a full comprehensive bill, yeah? Yes, I'm, I'm, I will always be uh, someone that has an audacious belief in what America can achieve, but at the same time, I've got to work within the environment that we have. We have a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Anything that we do, uh, it's not enough for the safety of our nation to pass things through the Senate that can't pass, that won't pass through the House and get to the president's desk. 
Some House Republicans have said they're open to elements of police reform, including making it easier to track officers who've been fired after using excessive force. Senator Booker says he's determined to find a pathway for some version of his bill, however scaled back. A lot of the elements we're talking about would address some of the deaths of the names we should not know uh, in, in America. I, I'm sorry we know Eric Garner's name, who died of a chokehold. Uh, one of those so-called smaller things could have saved his life. I'm sorry that the beautiful, uh, soulful Brianna Taylor's name, we know for this reason, well, the no-knock entries could have saved their lives. Creating a national database that stops a police officer who is fired in one jurisdiction from simply going to another, uh, that could have saved Tamir Rice's life, a name we should not know, a child murdered. And so, yes, there are a lot of components in this that can make our neighborhoods and our communities safer and make our policing more effective. Because the fundamental thing that I know from my time as mayor of the city of Newark is that when you have strong trust between police and communities, they're safer and stronger for our families. Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey. We're also following the continuing fallout from the police killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis last month. In addition to the cops that were fired, three emergency responders have also lost their jobs after footage showed they failed to give Nichols care for almost 20 minutes. You can hear our conversation about emergency medicine and police brutality at hereandnow.org. After the break, Scott asks former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers for his latest forecast for the economy. Stick around. President Biden last night touted the strong economy in his State of the Union speech. We're not finished yet by any stretch of the imagination, but unemployment rate is at 3.4%, a 50-year low. At the same time, inflation remains a worry for the Federal Reserve, which plans to keep raising interest rates to cool prices and along the way cool the economy. So big picture, where is the economy going? Let's put that question to Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary. Larry Summers, welcome back to Here and Now. To be with you. You were very early warning about inflation in the economy, that the Federal Reserve might be too late to react, and you were right. Now, do you see real signs of inflation easing? The economy right now is as hard to read as any time in the 40 years that I've been following it. On the one hand, the economy is very strong, as the president suggested, with the low unemployment rate. And it's certainly true that inflation has come down. The hard thing to judge is whether inflation is on a strong enough downward trajectory to get to the 2% target. The Federal Reserve's target. Federal Reserve's 2% target, exactly. And whether if inflation comes down, it will stay down. We've all had the experience of taking a course of drugs and giving up, stopping the drugs before the course was exhausted, but simply because we felt better. And then whatever infection we had came back and it was harder to fight the second time. And Mm -hmm. that's the concern that the Fed is going to have to balance. And it's going to be a very difficult uh, balancing uh, act. I think the economy is going to slow and inflation is going to come down. 
whether we will achieve the proverbial soft landing or not. I think there's more grounds for optimism than there was Mm -hmm. a few months ago, but I still think the risks are very large that we either don't get inflation down durably or that at some point in the process, the economy tips into a recession. In one interview, Larry Summers, you described the possibility of the economy going into a, a sudden stop. What do you mean? We still are having spending from the savings that people built up when they couldn't spend during COVID and got substantial transfer payments. We've got many firms that struggled to fill all their vacancies, and therefore, even when demand goes down, are slow to uh, lay off people. We've got areas of the economy where there was a lot of optimism, a lot of borrowing, and a lot of expansion. And so I think the economy is vulnerable to a Wiley Coyote kind of moment where these things all come together and it's like walking off a ledge sometime in the middle or latter part of this year. I'm not predicting with confidence that that will happen, but I think the Mm -hmm. risks are significantly elevated. And and just help me understand this this sudden stop. Are you saying that if companies are loaded up on things that they make and they have a lot of workers, suddenly uh, something happens, demand comes down, then the economy could go into free fall? The walking off a ledge moment can come from multiple things. It can come from businesses deciding that they can lay off people because they'll be able to get them back because labor markets aren't going to be so tight. It can come from consumers running out of their cash reserves and not being able to dip further into uh, credit. It can come from businesses all deciding to pause on expanding capacity till they see what's going to happen more clearly. There are a variety of uh, things. It can come from some big increase in geopolitical uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So I think we have that kind of risk. And we need to remember that most of the time, recessions don't happen when they're confidently forecast. They happen sometime before that or uh, sometime after that. I understand. Can I ask you what your forecast is as far as a recession or no? I still think that it is more likely than not that sometime in the next 18 months, the economy will go into a recession. But it's certainly been a stronger economy in the last few months than I would have expected. Larry Summers is former Treasury Secretary and President Emeritus of Harvard. Larry Summers, always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, the new Poet Laureate of San Diego tells Deepa Fernandez about finding poetry in everyday life and hearing music in his Filipino-American family's navigation of multiple languages. That's after the break. Growing up, Jason Magabo Perez says he felt alienated from formal academic English. 
but hip-hop lyrics opened his eyes to the ways language could be used to explore political ideas around dignity and social justice. That was his gateway to poetry. The son of Filipino immigrants is now an ethnic studies teacher at California State University San Marcos, and he's the new poet laureate of San Diego. He joins us now to share how he hopes to work collectively with people like you to demystify poetry. Jason, welcome to Here and Now, and congratulations. Uh, Thank you so much, Deepa. Thank you for having me. So, Jason, I have to ask you, because I hear poetry was not always a natural fit for you. I want to know why, and then what changed? I think I felt rather alienated from poetry. Uh, When I encountered poetry as a youth, sort of felt that it wasn't an avenue or or a platform for expression for me. Um, I didn't feel empowered and feel welcome into the space Mm. of poetry. It, It often sort of felt like it was a reserved for uh, folks who had resources to read more poetry, to take workshops and things like that. And so, you know, I didn't have the tools to, to really understand that the music I was listening to, the, the stories that I was hearing um, at family parties or in, in my community were actually a kind of poetics or poetry itself. You know, I would love just for you to talk about the fact that the conversations in your family and other kind of forms of conversation for you felt like poetry. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, listening to my pops like tell a joke or uh, listening to Mm. sort of my mom's own repetitions within her Tagalog-inflected English, you know, it sounded like music to me. I think that poetry is about honoring and, and bringing together the many languages around you. And I think that, you know, both of my parents are, are, as you said, immigrants from the Philippines, and uh, they spoke several languages, um, including English, Ilocano, and uh, their primary mode of communication, and also Tagalog. And so they sort of navigated various languages, various sounds, various sentence structures, verb conjugations, and sort of all these things. And it wasn't as if I understood it fully, understood anything outside of English fully, but it sounded musical to me, and it I had a rela- I have a relationship with those sounds, and I think the way that I treat English and think about English sort of is related to that. Hmm. Well, I'm sure people right now would love to hear some of your poetry. So what's the piece you'd like to share? And maybe you can just launch right in and, and read us a little. Sure. Um, this uh, I would like to read a piece from a forthcoming book that I have um, coming out called I Ask About What Falls Away. And this one is called Dear Kasama. I draft this, dear Kasama, against fish hooks of hope. I draft against slow elimination. I draft from soft interior of riot. I draft syllables of known sadness, such knowing, such evidence, such kitchen table phenomenology of you reading this, of this reading you. On a rainy morning, I see you in a blue mask and black hoodie delivering bags of groceries at the doorstep. I draft from collected stillness, restless ghosts archived in my veins. Consider this an intimate poetics of rage. Consider this rage divine refusal. Let us talk about such refusal. Let us talk about such dysregulation of promise. Let us talk about how much I miss you. Mm. Gosh, so much in that, so powerful. 
what are you communicating in this poem? What are you trying to express? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, uh, the book from which this poem comes out of is, is really about grief and, and reckoning with grief or grappling with grief and sort of thinking about how our grief, in particular our grief as uh, during a moment of the pandemic, right, and so this is sort of when this is written, our grief as as folks of color, as gr- our grief as poets, our grief as uh, community folks, as, as members of our family, right, there's, there's something really intimate and I would say critical and, and political about our grief. And so I'm trying to point to that and say, you know, there's layers of, of feeling, layers of visions for the future, layers of thinking about the past, right? I think it's all in here. And there's a lot of different kinds of references that I was drawing upon as I was sort of thinking about and witnessing a dear friend of mine bringing me groceries at the beginning of the pandemic, bringing me groceries and leaving it at the at the doorstep, right? And I think that, you know, I, I mm. wanted to sort of capture all that converged in a moment like that, in a, in a sort of historical moment that we continue to be in. If you're just tuning in, I am speaking with San Diego's new poet laureate, Jason Magabo Perez. And given your deep sense of community, how do you feel like you will go forth as San Diego's poet laureate? Like you describe yourself as someone who's open, radically open to possibilities. So talk about that in your new yeah. role. I'm open to experimentation. I'm open to holding space and create co-creating space that's safe and uh, caring and that's founded on mutual generosity and humility. And uh, and I have some tools. I, I have, you know, a lot of experience in teaching poetry to various age groups and, and different contexts. And so I'm, I'm just happy to share what, if it's useful, share what I can with folks to create uh, poetry and, and tell their own stories and, and recite their own lyrics, the things that are deep inside of them. So Jason, you have another excerpt of your poetry for us. Let's hear it. Yes, uh, this one is, I ask about what falls away. I ask about what falls away. I ask about where water sings. Here is surplus of sun, ocean of excess, remaindered song. Whose hands wash this sky? Who drains this sun against worry? Whose mighty ache makes history? This is where water drains where gardens grow against worry, against the crisis of capital, and capital knows nothing but the veil hiding hand from profit. Here is leftover rice and the wild imaginary of hunger. Here is a canal in the crook of the earth, and here is where water sings, and this, this is water singing us elsewhere. Mm, Such a beautiful image of water singing in my mind. It takes my mind to all different places. So what did you want to communicate in this poem? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's coming out of this, this same idea of grappling with, with grief and, uh, but also thinking about labor, right? But allowing my sort of imagination to stretch beyond that. I, I, I will say that this poem is, is after the, the great Filipino labor organizer, Philip Vera Cruz, who has a poem mm. titled Prophets Enslave the World. And, and I think that, you know, me sort of thinking about, you know, the, the economy, thinking about capitalism and, and sort of thinking about 
uh, the toll that the pandemic and sort of the, the, the capitalist response to the pandemic had taken on our communities and on the workers. I think this, you know, I had to sort of get into this space and think about, again, a, a layer of feelings, hope and sort of worry and sort of all these things that I was processing. So Jason, let's end with some homework that you have for all of us. And I have to say, it's really fun homework. So don't groan, everybody out there. Here's your chance to do some poetry. We will post Jason's homework for us all to our website at hereandnow.org. But can you give us the incredibly quick overview of what we're going to be doing? Yeah, so this poetry assignment is uh, basically based on this idea of, of cutting up language and allowing uh, our bodies to to do some of the work in terms of composing poetry. And so I'm basically asking everybody to think about the future. What does the future feel like? How do we sense the future? And so it's a very simple exercise that, that asks us to use scissors and, and uh, other things that, that we might not associate with composing poetry. And our producer... Ashley Locke and I both did this excitement and we will post ours and and it really got both of us thinking about our families in the moment that we're in right now. So hopefully others out there will engage in this fun exercise. And I really want to thank you. Jason Magabo Perez is an ethnic studies teacher at California State University San Marcos and the new Poet Laureate of San Diego. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you, Deepa. I appreciate it. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Head to hereandnow.org for more analysis of the State of the Union from political strategists and NPR reporters. And we've got a story about a new study that finds it's cheaper to build new solar farms than to continue running old coal plants. That could hasten the growth of renewable energy, even in some states with fossil fuel-friendly legislatures. And it just is increasingly not making economic sense, which is an important point here because in Kentucky, utility regulators, they're not allowed to consider the environment when they think about the future decisions that utilities make about power generation. But they can think about cost, which means if solar is now the cheapest option, utilities are going to have to look closer at choosing solar over coal. You can find that conversation at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Catherine Swartz, Gabrielle Healy, Julia Corcoran, and Ashley Locke. Our editors are Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Jill Ryan, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Max Liebman. Theme music by Max, me, and Mike Moschetto. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. 